number two. I understand that this is kind of our candlelight service, and you know we've got a lot going on, and uh, everybody's busy, right? We're all busy, and and I've got family events, and several of you have brought your family either this morning or tonight uh, to be with you, and this is a part of your annual celebration. But as we celebrate the miracle in the manger that was born thousands of years ago, we want to ask ourselves a question tonight that was asked of the innkeeper that night. I want you to go back in your mind, and throughout this series that we've been talking about, Behold Him, We've asked ourselves to go back and look at the Christmas story like it was the very first time we'd heard it. Or like we had just so happened that we were there that night. Like we were on the hillside with the shepherds when the angels announced the birth of Jesus like we'll talk about next Sunday morning. Or maybe you're the innkeeper and seeing this man and his wife expectantly saying there's no room. Or maybe it's the wise men who followed the star for up to two years looking for this new king. I want us to look at the story tonight from Luke chapter number 2. And I'm going to challenge all of us to look at it almost like it's the very first time you've heard the story. Because I think sometimes we get to the place where it's like, yeah, it's the Christmas story. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's something we read every single year. And we read to our kids. And we read all the storybooks and all those different things. But... It should captivate us, church. This story should grab our attention every single year. Let's look at Luke chapter number 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, if you're taking notes on your handout tonight, I want you just to go over three very simple things with you tonight. And just as we kind of talk about the Christmas story in a new way. Number one, I want you to examine the travel that's mentioned. The travel. Think about this first four verses, how when we think about this taxing, we have to think about why they were being taxed. We think about the why behind the what. You ask yourself that question all the time. When your kid walks up and says, hey, can I have five bucks? What's the first question you ask? Why? What are you going to use it for? Well, I'm going to buy you a Christmas present. Here's 20 bucks, you know, <laughs> which is kind of counterproductive that it's your money and they're buying you a gift. But at least if you're going to do that, tell them what you want, okay? But think about this taxing, the why behind the what. We understand this was their census, their way of keeping track of people. This was their way of Rome getting another dollar from poor people. And this wasn't optional. This taxing was these families going back to their native homelands and registering any new children, any new family members, any new personal property that they would be taxed on later in life. That's what this was purpose for. It was a mandate. But it even becomes a greater issue when you realize who is issuing the mandate. 
It says there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. This guy, this particular man, is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. That same Caesar. You know, the guy that had his picture on all of the money? That's the same guy. This is the great nephew. The term Augustus is what's substantial to us. Because that phrase meant divinity. It meant someone who was godlike. So essentially what they're saying is God has made a decree that you go back to your homeland for this tax. So when they saw this decree, when they heard about it, it was as if God himself was speaking. So pastor, how is that relatable to me? Why is that important? The history is important to realize because through this act, the one true God would send his son into the world. This is the way that God would use the actions of someone who thought that he was God to bring Jesus, the true God, into the world. See, Jesus had to be in Bethlehem. He had to be born. It was Rome's plan to squeeze every bit of tax out of the people, but God used this horrific experience in Mary and Joseph's life to get them to be where God needed them to be. In Galatians chapter 4, and verse 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. God led them to an obscure place by an overwhelming proclamation from an obnoxious politician. We wouldn't know anything about those. Because of an omniscient purpose. God desired Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. And all of that seems like a stretch. But we have to remember that everything God does in our lives is calculated as well. Everything that we experience in our life, God meticulously details out for us to see. And he goes to great lengths for us to get to where he wants us to be. This taxing, it was horrible. But they had to go to Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Remember, this is the passage of Scripture that the wise men looked to. When Herod said, where is he supposed to be born? Micah 5, 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that's to be the ruler of Israel. So there was great travel involved. But not only that, number 2, there was also trouble involved. Verse number 5, it tells us that Mary and Joseph traveled to be taxed, verse 5, with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, we talked in our series the last few weeks about what this means, what this espousal means. There were three parts of the marriage process in Jewish culture. There was the engagement. That was the prearranged part. That was as moms and dads, you would figure out other families in the community, and you would hand-select from an early age the child that your child was one day going to marry. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. all the teenagers are like, thank God I wasn't born there. You know? But at the same time, this is their culture. This is what they did. This was normal for them. It was nothing for them to know growing up, six, seven, eight, nine years old, yeah, that kid over there, I'm going to marry one day. And they meant it because they knew it. But that was the engagement process. Can you imagine a little six-year-old walking up to you and saying, yeah, I'm engaged to that kid over there. Engagement. 
But then there was the betrothal part. That's where Mary and Joseph were. They were betrothed to be married. They had already entered into the legally binding part of the marriage. They hadn't consummated the relationship yet. But they was legally binding. It's ironic to me that even though they got to this point, the girl could still say no. She could still say, I'm not marrying that guy. He's ugly. He's got a wart on his face or whatever. Or if the mom and dad said, you know what, that young man cannot provide for our daughter, they could break the agreement, but it had to be by a written decree. It had to be a divorce. But we see the third stage, and that was marriage. And we see that they were in this stage, this third part. They had been engaged. They had been betrothed. Now they're married. They're in this part where they're traveling together. They're literally man and wife. As far as the world is concerned, they are married, traveling together. But we see the trouble in the fact that Mary is great with child. They had to travel, get this, 80 miles. Ladies, how would you like to be traveling 80 miles anywhere, being great with child? That was the trouble. And consider the fact there was no planes, trains, or automobiles. You were riding a donkey or you're walking 80 miles miles. They're heading to Bethlehem. But imagine traveling all that way only to find when you get there that there's no room. No room. Imagine the frustration with Joseph standing there begging and pleading, knowing that his wife would have to stay in a barn, that this baby would have to be born there, and them knowing who he was. This is God's son. He's going to have to be born in a place that is disgusting. I'm sure it was frustrating. But you think about our lives today, there are times when frustration seems to be our friend because it's always around. Whether it's our family or whether it's work or whether it's church or whether it's friends or spouse or kids, whatever that may be, there will always be something to be frustrated about. And that's why we see in Psalm 34, verse 18, David said, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. It's easy for us to wonder, why am I here? What's God doing? Why has he led me to this place? And why do I have to go through this? But Mary had to be in this exact place to be born, for Jesus to be born. But as much as it was troubling, there was also a sense of peace. Now think about this, and then I'll give you the last point and we'll be done. Think about the fact that they were in Nazareth. Everybody knew their circumstance. Everybody in Nazareth assumed that this was not a good situation. Parents, you understand. Adults, you know what I'm talking about. The fact that they thought that there had been conception before marriage. That's what they assumed. Even as Jesus got older, they accused him of being an illegitimate child. But as they traveled to Bethlehem... When they showed up at the inn, they were just another couple expecting a baby. Even as they got there, there was a sense of peace. At least we won't have to hear people whispering about us when we get here to Bethlehem. At least we won't have to worry about someone looking up there, looking down their spiritual nose at us and criticizing our situation. It was only in their hometown that people suspected anything. Only in their hometown where people knew them. So even in these circumstances, there was still a feeling of peace. At least we won't have to worry about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16 says that that's the feeling that 
God wants us to have this Christmas season. It says, now the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Always by all means, the Lord be with you. Isaiah 26, 3, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusted in thee. See, peace is possible, but peace is only possible in Jesus. He is the source of our peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who are sometimes are far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Hey, do you want peace today? Don't we need peace in our day-to-day lives? Hey, the only place we'll find it is in Jesus. You're not going to find peace in this world and what they have to offer. You won't find peace in your bank account. You won't find peace in your retirement account. You won't find peace in the relationships that you have with others. But you can find peace in Jesus. Say, Pastor, how is that possible? Because of why he came. He came to allow you and I to experience what we can't get anywhere else. And that is peace with God. Because out of that relationship flows all of our other relationships. When I have peace with God and I understand that God has a plan for my life and that he's under control and everything is according to his design, then I know that whatever happens to me in this life, I know that it's been planned by God and he does all things well. And that's why I can have peace. Well, pastor, what about in my job? What about in my marriage? What about in my home? What about my relationship with my kids? If you have peace with God, everything flows out of that. And even though you might not be happy in the present moment, you can still have peace in the moment. We see the travel, we see the trouble, and then verse 6 and 7, we see the triumph that's mentioned. The name Bethlehem here, it says, and so it was that while they were there, there, the place, Bethlehem, while they were in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The name Bethlehem, that town, that word means house of bread, place of bread. So it only makes sense that the bread of life would be born in the house of bread. The bread of life. But what made his arrival so triumphant? What was it about him coming that we celebrate? It was worth celebrating by the angels. It was worth these wise men, these magi to travel thousands of miles. What was the big deal? It's what he came to do. It's what we see in Matthew chapter number 1 when the angel spoke to Joseph and said, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's why it's triumphant. That's why we celebrate at Christmas his arrival. The location was ridiculous for a king to come. Bethlehem. It was a simple place. It was a house of peasants. Not fancy. They didn't have a palace there. They didn't have a fancy synagogue there. It was poor people. Yet that's where Jesus chose to be born. Kent Hughes said, If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous, 
There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. It was clearly a leap down as if the Son of God rose from his splendor, stood poised at the rim of the universe, irradiating light, and dove headlong speeding through the stars over the Milky Way to Earth's galaxy, finally past Arcturus where he plunged into a huddle of animals. Nothing could be lower. And that's why his birth is so triumphant. The fact that God became man. God confined himself to a single cell in the womb of a virgin to be born to die. That's what makes his birth a triumph. God became man. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Stayed God yet became man. He is the reason for Christmas. Say, Pastor, we, man, we're going to get up next Monday morning and, man, we're going to have Christmas presents and we're going to have breakfast with our family and we're going to do all these things. That's awesome. But that's not why we celebrate. We celebrate because God sent us a Savior that we honestly truthfully do not deserve that's why his birth is triumphant it's the fact that he stooped so low to reach us see we couldn't stoop up we couldn't reach up yeah I, I like that you know when he reached down his hand for me he had to reach way down because there was no reaching up on our part he reached down for us he reached down to where we are, and by coming to this earth, he came as God in the flesh so he could identify with our hurt and disappointment and pain and suffering. He understands what we're going through. But the question is tonight is, have you received the greatest gift that's ever been given? You know, as we come to a tree next Monday, most likely, you will come and there will be a present Underneath a tree, maybe like this. Maybe not as big and pretty, but it uh, might look like Charlie Brown's. You never know. But many of us will come to a tree and there will be a gift with our name on it. The greatest gift that was ever given was hung on a tree. And when we come to that tree and we look up and see the one who was born to die. It makes Christmas so much better. It makes Christmas so much more magnificent when we realize that the man who is God was born in a manger, grew up and lived a perfect life so that one day he could be hung on a Christmas tree. Not one like this, but a tree where his arms stretched out and he hung there and died. Because that was the price for you and for me.
that he would die and he would be the greatest gift ever given. So the question tonight is, have you received that gift? This Christmas, have you received Christ, the greatest gift that anyone could ever be given? Is that your story tonight? Have you beheld him? Have you looked in the manger and have you seen the Son of God who was sent for you on your behalf? Because if you haven't, you're missing out on a great gift. But you can walk out of here tonight with that gift. Knowing that you have received his gift of salvation. Let's pray together. Heads are bound. Eyes are closed. Let me just ask you a simple question tonight. We're not going to have a formal invitation or anything like that. I'm not going to sing. Not yet. We're getting ready to go to our candlelight portion of the service but let me just ask you a question have you received the gift if there was a gift to be given this Christmas season directly from God it would be the gift of his son and that gift is received when we reach out and accept what he has already done on our behalf the only thing required for salvation is that you realize that you are in need of a savior See, you and I were born with a sin problem. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And you and I were born sinners. You don't have to teach your children how to lie or anything like that. They're born with that knowledge. We're sinners by birth. But Jesus came and paid for that sin when he died on the cross. But you and I don't get that gift by default. There's something that we have to do on our part. We have to trust in him. We have to place our faith in him. We have to exercise our faith, much like many of us will do next Monday. When someone reaches out and says, hey, this gift is for you, we'll reach out and take it. That's what salvation is. It's reaching out and receiving the gift that he's offering. So tonight, I want you just to ponder, have I received the gift? Has there been a moment in your life or time in your life when you've trusted Jesus as your personal Savior? Maybe you say in a crowd this size, say, Pastor, I, I've not done that. I don't know what that's like. You know, salvation has been made simple so that everyone can receive it. But that gift that's being offered comes when you acknowledge that you have a sin need and Jesus died to pay for that sin. And you reach out and receive in faith by asking him to save you. That's a simple prayer. I'm not going to put words in your mouth on what to pray. But if you're here tonight and you say, hey, I don't know that I have received that gift. Salvation is literally you telling the Lord that you have a need. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that if I die that way, that I deserve to be separated from you because of my sin. My sin separates me from a holy God. But then recognizing what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for coming. God, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for my sin. And then asking him to save you in faith. Jesus, forgive me my sin and be my savior. Help me to live the rest of my life, whatever I have left, for your glory. That's what salvation is. It's not anything magical, mystical. It's not magic words that you pray. It's simply trusting that he will do what he promised to do. So tonight, right there in your seat, maybe you would simply ask Jesus to save you. 
and you would receive his gift of salvation. That's not something that I can do for you. That's not something that your mom or dad or your grandma or grandpa, God doesn't have grandchildren, he has children. That's a decision that you must make. You say, Pastor, I've got plenty of time. That's what Satan would love for you to believe. But one day, all of our time will run out. So the question tonight, have you received the gift? We would love to introduce you to our Savior. You know what to do. The question is, have you done it? Have you received the gift? Have you come to the manger to behold him and seen him afresh and anew? Father, please speak to hearts. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know that you are their Savior, they don't know you as their personal Savior, Lord, please help tonight to be their night of salvation. Lord, help them to call on you for salvation. Lord, help them to see you, maybe for the very first time. And Lord, they would call out to you. Lord, I ask that you please do a work that only you can do. And Lord, please help someone maybe tonight in this room or watching online to ask you to forgive you of their sin and to trust you for salvation, to behold you as that miracle in the manger, that gift in the manger. Lord, please do what only you can do tonight and save someone in Jesus' name. Amen.